Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast with me, Chandradasa. This podcast is a missive from the heart of Triratna, a little look at different people around the world and the ordinary but quite extraordinary lives that they're leading in the light of the Buddhist teaching, in the light of the Dharma, as we call it. And today we have yet another brilliant guest, and in this case, an old friend, someone I haven't seen for a while, but with whom I have quite a strong history because we were ordained together. And he's here to talk mainly about his book, which is called It's Not Out There. I'd like to welcome my very good friend, Dana Priya. Hello, Chandra Dasa. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, it's such a delight. So listen, people who don't know you and who hopefully meet you soon through your book and get to know you that way, where are you coming from in the world? And yeah, I guess what's happening in the universe around where you are? Well, I'm in a seaside town called Deal in the county of Kent. It's sort of southeast England, United Kingdom. And I feel really fortunate to be in this town. It's such a lovely beautiful town, good community. And I just feel like it's got a heart. And it sort of feels such a good place to be in in the pandemic, actually, because I do feel like lots of people are looking after each other in, in a certain way. Well, we've been in a lockdown for about three months early in the year. And that was really was a lockdown. The world was different. And actually, I, oh, I really liked the quality of life I got during that time because I couldn't work and the spaciousness was lovely. And I started doing some online classes. So that gave me enough sort of contact. And I got used to the online forum, which I wasn't too sure at the beginning. (laughs) My brain just got exhausted. Whereas now I'm used to it and I like it and it really works. It really feels like I'm with people. Like at the moment, you know, I'm in England and Chandra Das is in America. And I feel like I'm with him. You know, we're having a real conversation. And with you too, wherever you are in the world. And I'm promoting my book like there's no tomorrow. I'm doing lots of launches around the planet. Another good thing about Zoom. I can pop in anywhere from my lovely little room in Deal. When you talk about promoting your book, for some reason, a red carpet comes to mind. I think I wish we could roll out a red carpet for you and have a a proper do in a way around your book. We'll have to wait for that. (laughs) (laughs) Once we sell the millionth copy, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's the deal. If if you sell a million copies of this book, we'll organize a red carpet for you somewhere (laughs) in deal. I was lucky enough to read the draft of your book. I read it on an airplane, funnily enough, the last time I was traveling between the US and the UK. And reading the final version of the book again, which was a real delight, I thought I'd maybe pull the camera, as it were, all the way back out again. Given that some of the backdrop at the moment is sickness, death, and also the kind of contentiousness of the world. One of the things that really struck me reading, I think it was the first chapter rather than the introduction, was that you talked, Dana Priya, about something beautiful and awesome happening in the universe. That was your entry point to this. And I was really interested in that as a kind of image and also, I guess, I assume an aspect of your experience, both as a writer and as a human being. Talk to us a little bit about this something beautiful and awesome that's happening in the universe. Yes. The more and more I've had a spiritual practice, I've been a Buddhist for 25 years, and the more sort of retreats, the more I meditated, the more I've gone on solitary retreats and things, I've become more and more sensitive to energies around and sort of, well, synchronicities and coincidences and something huge, I feel, going on in the universe, which is really, really positive and benevolent. And I really don't mind what 
anybody calls it because I think whatever language one uses, you know, I could be talking Russian and, you know, I'm talking about the same thing. The more I sort of get my ego and get myself out of the way, the more something amazing happens or signs come. And well, the book's that. The book, I don't feel I wrote the book. I feel I just opened up to, well, what's next? I was thinking last year, I was 60 last year, and I was just thinking, what's this new decade about? You know, what do I want this decade to be? Because my energy will decline. And what I came up with is I want to share what I've been given. That was what I came up with. But then all my magic sort of came about. I never thought I was someone to write a book. I wouldn't have thought that was in me. But I spoke to my preceptor and he said, well, don't think about it in terms of writing a book. Maybe just write a page and see what happens. And then it felt like this flow just came in that I sort of thought that's that positive benevolent, whatever it is in the universe. Because the way the synchronicities of everything to do with it, you know, 11 chapters came out in 14 days. I mean, I thought, who's writing this? <laughs> it didn't feel like So I just feel like the more I get out of the way and open to something more that I have more and more faith in, the more something magical works. And I love life when those sorts of things happen. But as soon as I get to control and manipulate and try and sort it, it blocks it all. <laughs> so I hope that's something of what you were pointing at. Well, I recognise that. I think anyone who's practising probably recognises the dynamic of that. Just as you say, if you get yourself out of the way, stop taking yourself so seriously, all that stuff, which is painful, of course. And, and pain was something, again, that particularly in the first half of the book, it's very clear that it's a very personal book in a certain sense for you. It's not personal in that clinging sense of it's about you, because I think you're right. It doesn't come across as being particularly about you, but the wellspring of the experience in the book that you're trying to communicate is painful and personal and, I guess, existential. Without too many spoilers, I suppose, since we want people to read this themselves, can you just give us a little sketch in a way of the origins of the book in your experience? What was it you eventually distilled when you were writing about the entryway for you into spiritual path? Well, I mean, I think most people's entry into or onto a spiritual path, spiritual journey is some sort of suffering. Something happens. We don't wake up very easily. And normally it's quite a big thing. Either somebody's died or it's our own health or we lose a job. And for me, it was health. You know, when I was 30, one might have looked at me at 29 and thought, he's made it. You know, he's doing well. And from a worldly point of view, that was true. But my body said, no, I was stopped when I was 30, March 24th, 1990. And I was bed bound then for 13 months. And I had to stop and look deeper and see what my life's about. I'd never asked myself the question, what do I want to do with this life? I'd sort of almost just done what I thought I should do. <laughs> so it was really a great opportunity to stop. So suffering made me stop and look and go deeper and sort of think, what's this spirit in here meant to be doing this lifetime? And so that was the start of it. And I think what I'm doing is I'm just sharing lots of wisdom that's been given to me by so many wise people, by going on so many retreats, listening to so many Buddhist talks or, or personal growth talks too, you know, anything that has enabled me to become more than I was before. And in a way, that's what the book's about. I'm just showing there's so many different aspects in here that I cover you know, from just the way we, we speak, you know, there's a sort of chapter called Talk That Perfumes the Air. Well, 
you know, I can make a stink if I want, you know, it depends what comes out and how aware I am or, or how loving it is or how, how unkind it is, you know, and it's just, I'm making the difference in the world. What I learned was everything is my choice. I have to take full responsibility. And I think I was in a bit of blame mode before. So the suffering woke me up to a whole new host of extraordinary possibilities. There's one thing that came up for me reading the way that you addressed that aspect of life was, well, how does the personal pain, the taking of personal responsibility, relate in your mind to the more communal, collective manifestations of pain in the world? I guess I'm thinking particularly about politics and power. And well, it's almost like those things are shot through with everyday sorrow for people, sometimes big sorrow, sometimes just little sorrow. And yeah, I guess in a country where there are some competing models for what it is to be a society going on. And Buddhism, I think, one of the strengths of Buddhist community certainly is that we're, we're offering an alternative that is actually rooted in the kind of process you're, you're discussing of personal responsibility. How do you see the relationship between the personal side of that suffering and pain and the communal aspect and then how we live? Well, I think until one personally suffers oneself, you can't quite understand other people's suffering. And I think it just opens one's heart. I think I definitely have become more compassionate from any suffering as I've had. And, you know, I can find myself when I'm listening to news about people across the other side of the planet, I don't know, but I can end up crying because I feel I don't have to know them. And I think also things like our meditation practice, the metabhavana, the cultivation of loving kindness, where you do just put yourself in the shoes of friends and neutral people who are doing things for me to help me live a rich life, who I don't know, but thank you for making my porridge this morning or growing it or <laughs> transporting it, you know. And then people I find difficult, sort of gently opening my heart to them that they've had their journey just like me and, and they're just manifesting because of the conditions that have gone before. So it's sort of like a, a heart and a mind, you know, sort of like getting a clarity and a wisdom of an understanding of people have had their journeys and it's not personal if any of it's coming towards me, you know, that's nothing to do with me. And that's where we need the gap to just step back and see that I don't have to react negatively. I can, you know, be kind. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that suffering almost ironically is the basis for empathy when it comes to our actual experience, like as hard as you say to relate to why somebody else's welfare should be as important as your own until you've experienced suffering and then experienced the kindness of strangers and, as you say, the great good fortune of just how we live, so interwoven with other people and what they give, what they do for us day in, day out. One of the themes early in the book that you address is people's resistance to change in their lives. You know, all the reasons we stick with something that's maybe less than fulfilling, sometimes downright harmful in our lives. As you say, in your case, illness kind of forced your hand. Yeah, you were just stopped in your tracks. And that is the start of the path, is the suffering of that. And I guess the start of a deepening for you into empathy, that is a very beautiful aspect of the book. If people are listening to this who resonate with some of that and maybe know somewhere that they're a bit stuck or a bit afraid to change, but maybe they can see out the corner of their eyes at where the change might be coming or might be necessary, what would you say to them? Well, the thing is, I mean, I'm sure lots of us have said I can't change at times, but the reality is we are change. We're always changing. We were born, 
we're going to die. And always in between, we're changing. I mean, I'm changing now in this conversation. The question is, how do you want to change? It's like taking the reins of that change rather than letting external conditions impinge on your choices, whereas you can actually, who's running your mind? You know, who's running your life? Life is short. It really is. And actually, I was woken up yesterday. A really good friend of mine who I've been having my hair cut with for 16 years, every five weeks, Chris, she was as well as me right now, cycling, doing lots of things. And she had a heart attack and died yesterday, 57. You know, I'm a bit shocked today about that. But, you know, we don't know when we're going to go. So let's get on with it. Yes, there's always fear. Fear with any change. Fear in anything in life. Fear is not going to go away. Actually, the first personal growth book I ever read was Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Amazing. I always remember that title. I read that about 35 years ago. But actually, it's true. We don't get anything new or anything exciting without a bit of fear. You have to just, like me, just doing this podcast, you know, there's a bit of fear. What's Chandradasa going to ask me? <laughs> Am I going to be all right doing it? It's just the way it is. But actually, when you've done it or whatever it is, you know, it's an achievement. Oh, yeah, I can do that, you know, or else we can stay limited in our box that can sometimes be quite uncomfortable. But, you know, is that the best you can do? Well, I would say you're worth much, much more than that. I think the biggest poison for human beings is their lack of own self-worth. We just don't realise what amazing beings we are. You know, we're absolutely stuffed full of love. Nobody's got any more or less than anyone else. Whether you choose to let it live or not, you know, whether you let it exist in the world. We're always changing. It's what do you want to become? What work of art are you creating of your own being? I guess some people may not even be in touch with that potential in themselves. They may not know that they're stuffed full of love, which is a, a great phrase. It's kind of moving to hear about your friend Chris. I'm sorry to hear about her, her death. I like imagining you having your hair cut together for all those years. And I can imagine that the connection between you two is also stuffed full of love or shot through with love in that way. But I'm struck that a lot of people just, they wouldn't even relate to that description of their own potential. Well, I think it is the biggest shame, actually, because, well, we've got every quality, aren't we? We're not only stuffed full of love, we're stuffed full of courage and confidence. You know, where else is it? Is it up on the shelf? Has somebody else got it? Well, no. (laughs) We've got everything. And it's just a mind thing. That's why you know, meditation and study sort of helping us see more clearly or see reality, basically. And yeah, by by seeing more clearly, taking space on our own, being in nature, in quiet, we see more clearly. And then we can make wiser choices about our life and just see that we are much more than we thought we were. And that's why we need friends, actually, who rejoice in it and can help us see ourselves, because often we well, we could be our worst enemy rather than our best friend. We may as well be our best friend but with ourselves all our life, you know. But it's a challenge. It's, mm. a challenge. it's lonely, isn't it, to be in that place where, in a way, trying to imagine yourself into a place of greater courage or greater kindness or just greater awareness, longing for the connections that turn into friends. That's a, that's a real challenge for people, isn't it? Particularly in a way when the world isn't working the way they're used to. 
That's true. And I think this is a time where we need to expand in different directions. I know quite a number of people who said, well, I can't use Zoom. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, then you just gently lead them through it. And then they find this whole world out there where whatever it is, it's five rhythms dancing they've never done or singing in a choir or it's gone delightfully mad. And it's sort of so there's so much accessible to us, but it's just you know, again, facing a bit of fear, you know, you don't know who's going to be there, and that's fine, but they're just like you, they're probably fearful as well, you know, but we make connections, you know, I've done quite a lot of online, a variety of things, and I know it's it's not the same as being with people, of course it's not, yeah, it's just, it's again, it's stepping into something new, and, and you're worth it, aren't you? Now, people listening to this, sadly, I always think this is quite sad. They can't see your lovely face the way that I can. Behind you in the room, this beautiful shrine, Buddhist shrine, with a couple of, well, actually four different Buddhist figures, pictures and sculptures. There's also a very lovely poster of the rather beautiful, simple cover for Dana Priya's book. The title is It's Not Out There, and there's some lovely font work going on on this cover. One of the things that really struck me about the title was that you had gone for a spatial metaphor, because a lot of the discourse of the book is about time, in a way that being in the present, being in the now, of course, be here now combines both of them, that's the thing. But I was quite interested in why, was it significant for you that you you located it in space? It's not out there, it's in here, that sort of present thing. Like What was going on for you with the title? Well, a number of things, actually, because when I moved to Deal 16 years ago, I came for a rest after being at the London Buddhist Centre for nine years. And I had about a year and a half's rest delightfully here, sitting on the beach, writing poetry, learning Tai Chi and things. Then after a year and a half, I decided I needed like-minded people again. Well, the Buddhists, actually, and there was nothing down here. So somebody said to me, why don't you give a public talk to see if there's anybody down here? So I thought, okay, so I've booked a space. And the talk I wrote was called It's Not Out There. It's interesting, the posters just had It's Not Out There, A Buddhist Perspective. And I thought maybe a dozen people would come. Well, we got 78 people in that room that night with only 40 seats. And we had to turn a lot of people away. So that title had quite a draw to it for some reason. And there was some magic to it. So one of the chapters was called It's Not Out There. It wasn't my working title as I was writing the book. I had something different. But actually, then when I saw that it's not out there, you can also have the words it's here highlighted in it because they're within the words. I thought, yeah, no, that's it. Because we're so often looking out there for things to make us happy. And then, of course, we get the new shiniest, whatever it is. And then two weeks later, they're advertising an even better one. (laughs) And it's like this continual, you know, craving is well, encouraged by the material world, isn't it? Which is exhausting if you're still entering into that game. And actually more and more, I just saw that, no, it's about within my heart. It's about the quality of just my being. And then out there becomes amazing, (laughs) you know, because it's sort of that way around, rather than trying to get a beautiful inner life from things out there. Because there's a secondary title to the book, which sort of helped me make more sense of it, is How to See Differently and live an extraordinary, ordinary life. So we're living the same life, 
And it becomes extraordinary because we're coming from a real heart place rather than trying to sort of change ourselves into a shape that we think we should be, we think the world wants or having the right shoes or whatever it is that we can feel all right in our boots and dungarees or whatever it is. It's an inner thing rather than an outer thing. Can I ask what was the working title for your book, Dana Priya? Just Um, Secrets of the Trade. Seeing Differently and Accepting Difference. I can see why that was attractive, but I think it's not out there as accessible and very straightforward. The the other one was one of the other chapter titles, which I love, and it's a great chapter. It's never not now. And that's true. It's never not now. People miss most of their lives because life only happens now. And if Mm. we're absorbed in the future with our mind, our soap made off into the future or regrets the past, we're ruining all our nows. The image in my mind thinking, just in terms of how this conversation's going and working through the book, there are lots of kind of interwoven threads. It's almost like subtly different colours being woven into a particular, not shape exactly, it's, it's like a pattern. There's a pattern emerges through the book. And one of the things that you come back to often is an encouragement to people to come back to themselves, just their own experience, what's happening, which is a very Buddhist idea in a sort of core way. And you do actually talk about coming back to your true self, as it were, which you know, my sort of buddhist ears pricked up when I read that, because, of course, in Buddhism, this kind of encouragement to not see yourself as fixed or set in a particular way and suffering, the root of that is often expressed as getting stuck in a view of yourself. So I know that's not how you meant it when you talked about that, but the language of intuition and coming back to yourself, obviously, we also have conditioned limitations in ourselves that we also have to go past, imagine our way sometimes past. So I'm interested in the connection between those two that are the tension between them. It seems that there's a way to hold your, in inverted commas, true self that seems to be to do with impermanence and a certain kind of suffering the provisionality of things. You know, you're just like letting go into life in the now, as you say, and I suppose enjoying it in a certain way, just the whole ride, as it were, of it. Yes, more and more as I practice different spiritual paths, more and more I've listened to my sort of belly, really, my intuition, my something more's going on. And the more I've trusted it, which isn't always easy to do, but the more I have, I feel like I've entered a flow and the external conditions meet it. I just feel like the universe is amazing when I don't battle with it. <laughs> The universe is also bigger than you, isn't it? It's like to enjoy it and to like go into it, you have to really take on that. It's definitely not centred around you. No, not at all. And I think I pretty much got now that everybody is the centre of their universe, which has been quite a while coming. I sort of feel like I'm quite different now because of really seeing that, that they think they're the centre of the universe just like I do. Or that's how it feels. And that somehow has relaxed something at a particular level. I'm not sure how or what, but it's like, well, it's seeing reality again, isn't it? It's like a new insight that isn't easy to get, but it's obviously true. (laughs) It can't be not true. For many years, I lived like, well, I didn't give it any thought that they might be also like me. (laughs) But I pray every day. I pray to 
this positive, benevolent, loving force. I mean, I have a whole string. I, when I start my meditation in the morning, I ask all the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, you know, all these, my spirit guides, helpers, and all my ancestors that come in love and compassion, please help me be a force for the good this day and help flow through me whatever the people need that I come into contact with. So it's like, I always start the day with that. And I really feel it. I really feel like, yes, something is going to help me today. Say the words that need hearing rather than the ones I think they should hear, which is quite different. It's lovely to hear that that is your practice. Because again, I think when people often come into contact with Buddhism and and the idea of practice, particularly religious practice or spiritual practice, it all sounds quite grave in a certain way. But actually that lovely thing of just an ordinary, extraordinary person waking up in a seaside town in England and sitting down in the morning and thinking those thoughts as a basis for their day. Imperfectly, I'm sure. I'm sure you don't always manage, etc. That's one of the most beautiful things about community, isn't it? It's almost impossible to imagine the world being different until you start reflecting on the number of people who do sit down every day mm-hmm. and decide to dedicate some portion of their time and energy to the welfare of other people. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Very beautiful. It is beautiful. And like, you know, this morning I did the Dharma toolkit meditation here at 7.30 and there's, I don't know how many on there, but there's probably 90, 100 or whatever. And you're all just there meditating and it's wonderful, you know, and they're all around the planet. And so that's really supportive, just that there's all these other people doing it, but it's so helpful. One of my chapters is called Discipline is Enjoyable. Quite a few people have read the book, so that's their favourite chapter, although they say it's the one that's got most work for them in. But it's like we know if we get a discipline of doing something that's good for us, which somehow we resist it, (laughs) you know, like meditating, if we get a practice, well, our life's more enjoyable, isn't it? The more we can have other people or other conditions that support us to do it, the richer life is. In that sense, it is a profoundly optimistic book, isn't it? And sort of unashamedly optimistic book, not remotely in any sort of Pollyanna-ish way. When I read it again, I noticed that in a way, it's a bit of a book of two halves. I don't know if this is accurate or not in terms of your experience of writing it, but there is this kind of profoundly optimistic thing, which is not in contradistinction to what I'm about to ask you, but I noticed that the second half of the book, and this is the thing that I really connected with when I read your draft. In fact, I think I wrote about it in my little blurb at the start of the book, was themes of grief and love together. And later you have a chapter specifically about the importance of facing death and facing the sorrow of death as mm-hmm. a part of that same reality, that same profoundly optimistic reality. Can you say more about the kind of bittersweet mingling of those two? grief and love yes they're so so important i was only talking to simon my friend who died just his partner yesterday about this he just read my book well they both just read my book you know i was just reminding him that well we only grieve to the degree we've loved you know if we've really loved we're going to really grieve but how would a life be without loving it'd be so sad wouldn't it so it's sort of like Grief is so valuable and the more we can allow it to flow and support others in it, the richer our life is. I mean, every emotion is really, well, healthy if it, it lives. So grief is joyous in that it's always equal to love, isn't it? Even if it's not about people, about things we've lost, or you know, there is grief because we loved it. So they go together, they're just not separate. And then the thing about facing our own death now, we're like, Chris, I'm just alive as Chris I'm older than her you know I could go today but even if I live 
okay, so that is the reality, that is the truth. You know, I might not speak to Chandra Dasa again, because one was going, so you just be loving and lovely, you know, and you just really make it a meaningful meeting and never leave grudges, you know, because by really facing that truth, it's not morbid, it actually makes me live life more richly now because I don't know how many more nows I've got. That brings to mind, I guess if there's a thread that goes through the whole book, there is this idea that what you decide to set your mind on, what you dwell on, that's what you're going to become, whether that's through the love or through the sadness, through the grief, through the being in touch with joy that can come out of this, as you say, ordinary, extraordinary life. So now that the book is done, what's Dana Priya's mind set on? What is it you're dwelling on? Well, a few things. I've started the second one. <laughs> oh dear, what am I like? Anyway, but I'm also focusing on living this because there's no point writing something and not really, well, embodying it. And I do feel I'm embodying it in a sense. So like the two online classes I do a week, I'm using these chapters and just... Yeah. Or helping me remember and share it. You know, it's like I want to share what I've been given. And, and the more I do that, the more I can embody it myself. Because what we dwell on, we become. That's one of the chapters you just touched on. It's slightly there. So if I dwell on what I believe, and I really believe this book helps us live a very extraordinary, ordinary life, beautiful life, actually. It's helped me and it's still helping me. And uh, all the gifts that so many wise people have given me. But, you know, I could put it back on the shelf or whatever. But it needs living, doesn't it? I mean, we need to live these things we believe in, we've learned these insights we've had. So in that way, by doing the book launches, I've had lots of ideas for new chapters. <laughs> Yesterday I wrote The Enemy of Perfection was a chapter. <laughs> so many more things. More yeah, it's just opened up. And then also, yeah, I'm doing some life guidance work one-to-one that's coming from the book. So I've also got people coming to me from different places of the planet. So... That's a little. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd really like to talk about explicitly, either from the book or for whatever's going on? I think that's plenty. I mean, there's there's so much more in the book. It's 25 chapters. You know, they're short, accessible chapters, but you can read them quickly. But my word, there's a lot in them. <laughs> there's a lot of depth through them in, in, in pretty much all of them. So... No, I think that's been rich. I've, I've enjoyed talking to you, Chandra. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's tell people where to get hold of this book, because actually maybe this could be a little chance for us just to praise Windhorse Publications or the, the publishers who've done an amazing job at, let's face it, an incredibly difficult time for small independent Buddhist publishers. You know, that's, that's quite niche in a way, and they're just beginning to thrive and they're helping people like you bring out these extraordinary books and that is indeed where you'd go and get it at Windhorse Publications. We'll put the link in the show notes and anywhere you hear about this. But do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, what it's been like to work with that publisher? Very, very positive in lots of ways. Well, first of all, I've just written three chapters and total new author. I, well, I never thought I'd be an author, as I said earlier. And I thought, well, what happens if I write a book? You know, so I thought I knew the director of Windhorse at that point. And so I just rang him and said, well, I've written these three chapters. And what happens, you know, if I write a book? And he said, oh, Dana Frey, can I just ask you a bit about the book? And he asked me a few questions. He said, Dana Frey, that is incredible. So I've just come out of a trustees meeting. And that's exactly the sort of book we want an order member to write. There's synchronicity. I thought, oh, wow. So actually, that was it. I got a publisher, you know, which so many people have told me how difficult it is to get a book published. (laughs) So that was great synchronicity. And then they've been brilliant. You know, it's been edited twice by two really brilliant people. I've really enjoyed working with them. 
one in Australia, one in New Zealand. That's the wonderful thing about today's world. Doing the marketing and whatever. And, and again, they're doing a very good job in a more difficult situation. But my book is a first for them because they, up until now, have solely just done totally Buddhist books for a Buddhist audience. But they need, as a small publisher, they need to break into a bigger market. So my book is one that is accessible to anybody from any walk of life, any religion or none. So hopefully it's going to break into a much, much bigger market to make them more money so they can still make Buddhist books. Hooray! Hooray for Windrush Publications. And hooray to them for taking a risk in a way of moving into a new area of publishing. Well, it's brilliant in a way that you just turned up at the right time for them, the right time for you. And suddenly here you are working on a second book. Who knows where that leads you? The sort of lovely open path that is our lives with these things. As we mentioned, you can go to Winterest Publications' websites. You'll see the link in the show notes below. Please do support them. There's the opportunity to buy Dana Priya's book and also to sponsor future books. They've got some excellent projects in the works and they're really just getting going. So yes, please do support Winterest Publications and you'll get news there if you subscribe to their newsletters, etc. You'll get news of Dana Priya's new oeuvre when he's finished his new work <laughs> which i'm really excited to hear about i might ask you about that when we're off air afterwards but yeah thanks so much then appear just for taking the time to come and talk to us in a way you're not really selling a book are you you're talking to people about frankly the most important things in life it's not just a matter of commerce no absolutely i love what i've been able to make my life because of the wisdom that i've learned and i just so want to share it and, and that's what i'm doing i certainly don't think i'm going to make money out of it <laughs> but i do feel quite positively driven by helping people and my name means giver of love so i just want to keep giving love and so that's what we're having to go at <laughs> well you're very good yeah. at it and i look forward to the money spinning netflix special this almost inevitable from this. In the meantime, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. You're welcome. And thank you everybody for listening. I appreciate it. And if you are listening, you can, as Danapriya mentioned, you can meditate with us six days a week, if you like, on the Buddhist Center online. If you go to thebuddhacenter.com slash toolkit, you'll see the, the meditation in the menu. And yeah, just that lovely thing of every day you turn on your webcam, a bit sleepy in the morning at your computer, and suddenly all these beings manifest lit up like beautiful angelic pixels and there's nothing required of you they just sit with you it's very lovely very sort of remarkable probably unpredicted aspect of technology right that you can just show up with all these people all over the world and do something extraordinary which is sit in silence together it's absolutely beautiful and Danapriya can be met there as part of that community and hopefully there'll be many other ways you'll get to connect with Danapriya online. We'll also put the link to his website and you can partake of the digital resources that he's also produced to support It's Not Out There. And yes, do stay tuned. We'll be bringing you meditation and lots of Buddhist events through the year that will keep your spirits up wherever you are. And thanks for your time and attention. We hope that you're safe, that your loved ones are safe and well and that you continue to resource yourself in whatever ways work for you. We'll try and be part of that ecosystem for you. And we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.